0: Welcome back to the Hustle Podcast. Today I'm here with Helen Tran, CEO and founder of Jupiter. Helen's also a really awesome designer and new friend of mine. I've had a chance to get hang out with you face-to-face several times. Thank you for coming in to the studio to record this.
1: Yeah, anytime. I love Texas.
0: It's <laughs> oh, good to hear. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's always awesome to be able to do face-to-face recordings, because usually with guests they are remote and on Zoom, it's nice to be able to sit across from someone and have a chat. Yeah, um, for sure. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what you're what you're doing?
1: Sure. I'm a designer by trade. I've always been a designer. I think I've been doing it for about 14 years now. And I think the majority of people would know me when I had a stint at Shopify. So I was there front as we scaled from 250 to about 3,000 employees. So that was a pretty big growth spurt. And I think that's when people actually started noticing me, but by that point, I'd already been a designer for quite some time. So I'd worked at a branding agency, moved along to a bunch of startups, then ended up in a UX agency much like Fun Size. And then we got acquired by Shopify. And I stayed there for four years. Ended up doing a little bit of management towards the end. And then I left that position and, you know, did a whole bunch of nothing for a few months, <laughs> drove myself nuts, and then started Jupiter.
0: Awesome. So what's Jupiter, how was the idea born, and um, how did you decide to take a leap into starting a business?
1: Yeah, so I've, I've always been an entrepreneur. I was like that kid that was always trying to sell things to you on the playground. <laughs> I think I was just telling someone this yesterday, that my first thing that I ever tried to sell was my test scores to my mother. <laughs> so I had learned that there was this thing called an, um, an allowance, And I had never heard of anything like that before. And I was like, what do you mean your parents give you money every week? And my friend would say, well, if I did chores and I did really well, they would give me like, you know, $5 a week. And to me that sounded absurd (laughs) because (laughs) I was just doing chores because I had to. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And then I came up with this deal with my mom. I was like, you know what, if I give you 20 A's, you give me $20 and she was like yeah whatever and she thought i was kidding but at the end of the year i'd like compiled this pile of probably around like 200 because you know in grade school you get tested every day but they're silly tests with like five questions mm-hmm. And so I gave her this like stack of like 150 tests and I was like, money (laughs) hand over the money. Um, and that was my first business basically. Yeah, she did. She, I fleeced my mom. Um, and then, you know, I just continued this pattern, but my first real actual business, I was working full time at a, at a branding studio. And I wanted to figure out a way that I didn't have to pay rent. So I started a photography studio business and it needed to make enough money to afford all of my photography equipment, afford my really expensive hobby, but also afford the studio that I wanted to live in. So I had this whole dream of like this brick loft thing. And so I just opened the studio within the month and it did pretty well. So that was like my first real business. And then I knew at that point that I would always come back to it, but I knew I had to kind of like pay my dues and learn a lot of things before I started like really making big risks with my money and then the rest of my career design career happened I ended up working for other people and learning how other businesses worked and I'm really glad I made that decision and I also needed to grow up too I was quite immature and so I'm glad I kind of like took a back seat there and worked for a bunch of people and learned from them yeah and so now I'm back to Jupiter and it felt like the right time like it felt like I had left... Shopify and I couldn't see myself working at another startup or working at another tech company because I had felt that I had reached this level of maturity where I really wanted to test myself. And so I was thinking back to, you know, who are the people that I really want to serve? Who do I want to be around with day to day? What can I take advantage of in terms of like market trends, culturally, socially, and also, like, were there any ideas that I really thought needed to be fixed from a software perspective? Because I always knew I, I still, like, the nerdy side of me still likes making software. Mm-hmm. And I know that isn't, like, really interesting, but I I, I personally really like it still, <laughs> making software. So I thought back to when I was, like, a freelance designer and I was so frustrated with all of these booking systems that I had to um, develop into my client websites, because I was doing front-end development a lot at the time, too. Okay. And I was using this company, and I was so frustrated with using them. <laughs> I, thought, I think I would like beat my head against the table every single time a client requested them. But they were only really the competition. And that was, I'm dating myself, but that was like 10 years ago, or 12 years ago, even. And I remember thinking to myself, man, someone's going someone's gonna to totally fix this. And a decade later, no one had fixed it. And I had kind of left shop if I'm like, is this for real? Am I really, like, this seems absurd that no one else has tried to compete with them very seriously with, like, more modern technology or a more modern look on software. And so I was like, well, let's go for it.
0: Awesome. So what is Jupiter?
1: So, oh, sorry, (laughs) super unclear. (laughs) Um, So Jupiter creates operation software for businesses that are in service. And I know that's super vague because it's, you know, the 10-year plan is that. But right now what that means is we basically create a CRM software for the beauty vertical. So anyone that's a beauty professional and beauty kind of encompasses just a little bit more than beauty. It's not just hair or makeup. It could encompass like, aesthetic nursing, which Mm -hmm. includes like Botox and fillers and teeth whitening, but also massage therapists. There's like a huge gamut of that. Um, but I just say beauty and personal care because it's quickest way to kind of say that.
0: Awesome. How long did it take you to go from idea to getting the product in the market?
1: So it took my co-founder and I from April into November, the first year to build out something that was workable, like from a prototype perspective. And then from then on, the March following that, um, there was a few months there where we were focused on hiring and a bunch of other business-related things. Come around March, we started making big bets on getting people to pre-buy a annual subscription without even using the software. And that went really well. Um, so that was like a Like my way of trying to validate the idea before sinking even more time into it. Um, And in the meantime, I was still continuously doing user testing and just iterating on the product. Um, So I'd say we officially like quote unquote soft hit the market probably in October. So it took about 17, 18 months. I don't know what like April till October is. That span That's pretty of time. Cool. Yeah.
0: I, I don't know if you realized this, but I, I realized it today when I was doing a little bit of work preparing for this conversation. But your mother was a hair stylist, right? Mm-hmm. So is Natalie's mom. Yeah, <laughs> and you guys are both uh, Vietnamese.
1: It's a Vietnamese thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I
0: didn't. I didn't make that connection, but um, yeah. I know firsthand that problem, like, you know, because Natalie has been trying to help her when, when, well, at least when her mom was running a salon, yeah, like not having her own clients, but also people in, you know, employees in the salon. This is a, a big, you know, sort of, uh, how are we going to do this scenario? Yeah. So yeah, that's I, know, I just thought about today. I thought I would bring that up. I thought that was interesting.
1: Yeah. I think no one really thinks about it too much until I pointed out to them. I think everyone for, for quite some time, I think people met me with skepticism. Like, is this really what you want to do and, and why? And well, it's like, well, you know, someone who's doing this for sure. There's a woman in your life for sure doing this. Yeah, And for sure she knows another 10, 20, 30 women who are doing this. And it's just we never talk about it. But I I don't really know if we also give them the respect that they deserve in a way by giving them, you know, the identity of business owner. And I think it comes across too when I'm meeting them in real life, if they've kind of internalized this really weird story about them that they just run a salon.
0: I see what you're saying. They
1: they just do nails or they just do this. And I'm like, well, you know, legally you're all businesses. There's no difference. (laughs) It's just for some reason we afford white collar jobs a little bit more respect. Yeah. So that, that was partly, you know, one of the personal reasons why I went after this. Because I knew that because they don't get that right off the bat, that it wasn't going to be a clear target for a lot of people.
0: So when you stumbled on it when you when you realized that okay 10 years later no one still hasn't solved this problem were there other potential business ideas that you had that you were debating or was this a clear like yeah that's what I'm going to that's what I'm going to tackle right now?
1: I had been kind of the way I was looking at it was I was trying to look at it from a problem perspective and so I was really kind of doing a lot of soul searching, I guess you could say, into what type of topics I wanted to dedicate my life to. So there was only, you know, a few. There was financial independence, which is what I have been doing, what I ended up choosing. And then there's environmental concerns and, you know, big topics. Mm -hmm. And then of that, I thought I would choose one of these giant topics and then kind of whittle it down but when i really really thought about it i went on this really long this really long crazy 3 week hike and i had a lot of time to think and i realized that you know ever since i was a little kid i've always loved money i love commerce like i love seeing that people will trade this for another thing mm-hmm. And I've been obsessed with it since I was a child. And I ended up at Shopify and I love that experience too for a very good reason. And why would I not continue that if I love it so much? And if I consider it like such an easy thing. I was reading something the other day on Instagram that said like, there are a lot, there's lots of hard work out there. But there's something that you do that everyone else finds hard, but for some reason you find it bearable. Like, it's hard still, Mm -hmm. but for some reason, this topic you find bearable. And for me, that's the whole topic of money and commerce and and trading. That for me is not not just bearable, but it's fun. It's exciting. So I thought that's obviously important. And
0: earlier you said something about making decisions about what kind of people you want to be around. Uh, Was that a part of this too? Like, was it about the Founding team, or was it about the demographic that you want to serve?
1: It was about the demographic. I really wanted to see. I want. I really wanted to continue down the Shopify route. I really loved that I was around people who were creating small businesses, and so I I love that idea too. And I think that small businesses are really the crux of strong local communities. And I was noticing that when I was going to salons and my friend's salons, that it's not just a haircut you come in and you sit down and they, Hey, how's your daughter?
0: Uh, it's an experience.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. but it's, it's so personal in, in relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I just feel like they know everyone in their lives and all that stuff. And yeah. all of the women that help me look decent on a day to day basis, <laughs> they know everything about my life. Yeah. And I love, and even though I do pay them for their time and their service, like, there's something to that that I feel that tech often kind of pushes away in exchange for efficiency.
0: Mm.
1: And I, that doesn't align to my values. And if anything, I would do, I would, I would trade anything for tech to do more of that. Like I, I hate that we have this like slew of startups that are like delivery, everything to your house. And and my next question to that is like, well, what about all of those interactions that are good for you. Yeah. Those interactions where maybe it is good for you that you go to a checkout line and you talk to a cashier. Yeah, like maybe that's the reason why we're all so socially feeling isolated, is because those little things really do matter.
0: They really do. I mean, just thinking about my mother-in-law, like you know, when uh, after they landed in Dallas, after you know, when they came over after the war, you know, she very quickly started a business and she learned a lot about Dallas, America culture, all this stuff from some of her clients. Some of these clients she still works with to this day, even though she shut down her salon. Yeah, And in fact, she'll travel from Austin to Dallas just to, just to help these people because they, they have this 20, 30 year, I don't even know how long relationship these yeah. relationships. And yeah, I don't like, I think that, you know, maybe, you know so, some of these types of business can take advantage of things like square or whatever to make some of the transaction things easily but I don't really see a lot of uh, of uh, services that are cr- are created in that space though so again I'm not really really looking at it but I also I mean not that it this doesn't really matter because it's more about passion and interest but mm-hmm. I also suppose that your story and coming from shopify and continuing focusing in these kinds of problems uh, probably doesn't hurt like when you're talking to potential investors or people that are join your team and things like that nature.
1: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it doesn't hurt at all. And I like being around business, business owners of all types, like from very small business owners to you, I guess you're medium size, I don't even know. And then to like fortune 500 CEOs, I love it all. To me, it's it's just I don't see why business is a separate thing than just personal relationships. Mm-hmm. I do think it's very personal, like that statement that says, "Oh, this isn't personal, it's just business. It's all personal it's it's even more personal.
0: Every, yeah <laughs> I, I, I agree with you on that Every, yeah. from my at least from you know it people that are like not the owners that are leaders in the companies might feel a little bit differently, but from yeah. an owner's perspective, it's all personal.
1: Yeah, I learned that lesson a really hard way like last year. I thought I would be way better at compartmentalizing things and I don't think I am. And I don't know if that's a bad thing. I think when you're bootstrapping a startup and you look at the environment that you're forming around you and you and you're trying to make this decision, you're like, well, all of this money is basically paying for this experience. Like Yes, it's people. Yes, it's the office. Yes, whatever it is that you chose. And it's Mm -hmm. like, is it worth this? And and I think that's a decision that is deeply personal because you got to know what you actually want and what makes you happy, what's fulfilling. um, And you got to be super self-aware. And I thought I could just kind of like put it away in a part of my brain and say, no, like deal with it. (laughs) You can just like not think about the fact that you pay all of these salaries, but you can't.
0: A little bit different, but this is also something that Natalie and I have been experiencing recently because business is seven years old, but only a year and a half ago did we have a baby. And for most of that, uh, story of our business we always prioritized everyone before ourselves everything right mm-hmm. and we had never had the conversation about like what do we want from this yes like okay do we want to like do we really want to support our families so that they can retire and buy houses that decision like something like that makes a big difference on like how you think about money how you know how you're going to accomplish those goals we we had just never had those kind of conversations before yeah um, it's Kind of wish I we had done that a long time ago, but
1: well, you know, don't rush the universe's <laughs> timing, right?
0: Uh, so, um, the business—how big is the company now?
1: We're not that big. It's just me and my founder, and then two others.
0: Okay, you, st- so you still you still doing design? Yes. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. It's kind of funny that people are treating me differently now, and I'm like, I'm mostly still doing the design.
0: So when when you are. Meeting when you say you meet someone at a coffee shop or a bar or something and introduce yourself, do you, inter- do you lean towards CEO or lean towards designer? Neither. What? Do, how do you introduce yourself then?
1: I just say I own a software company. Okay. Yeah. Um, mainly because the CEO thing is super weird because it invites these questions that I don't, it, it changes the way they treat you, mm-hmm. number one. Because <laughs> all of a sudden it's like, I, I don't know. All of a sudden they work for you. It's very strange. <laughs> 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 and then, and then number two, I just don't love the questions that come from I'm the CEO. Um, cause I think some people have very strange perceptions of leadership that I don't quite agree with. Um, and so they're, nice, they always make a joke about it. They're like, Oh, you're the big boss. And I'm like, yeah, I guess, but it's so exhausting for me to hear that. Um, mm-hmm. It just makes me kind of a little bit sad, too, that our idea of leadership is this person that goes around being a dictator. Right. And then when I say designer, it, it's I feel like I'm. It, and then they kind of like don't afford me enough I see. <laughs> credit. <Yeah. laughs> and so I, I think I, I, it's my own ego and I'm wrestling with my own identity which is is very hard when you make the switch from... But again, as I said, it's not a switch, right? So I'm just as confused as they are when they're, when they're like, hey, what are you? And I'm like, oh, you know what? I just own a software company.
0: <laughs> what did you want to be when you were growing up and how did you get into design? A designer. You wanted to be a designer. You knew you wanted I did. to be a
1: designer. I did. And I think it was because I didn't... I think... Yeah. Did you have these things in the States where in like grade eight or something, someone was like, oh, you got to figure out what you're going to do with your entire life and take this quiz. It's a career aptitude test. Did you ever do that? Mm -hmm. So we had a civics course and I had to do that. And I had no idea what I would do because I wasn't remarkable at anything. Like I wasn't academically strong at anything. I wasn't athletically strong at anything. I wasn't. <laughs> I was just a blob of a person. Um, and so I was really confused about this all. And I knew that I was like, you know, of my test scores, I was relatively okay at math. But I really like to create things, so I always scored really high in like art, art, the artistic stuff. Um, so my teachers, who I didn't. Kn- I don't even know to this day if she understood what she was even suggesting me, but she's like, maybe you should become a graphic designer because a graphic designer is an artist who does math. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) And then I just kind of did more exploration in that path. Um, But really what I was excited about was around that time, the internet was more accessible to me. So I was creating websites on my own time, my personal time. So I became this huge computer nerd. But that wasn't a profession back then. Right. So I didn't know what I was going to do with my entire life. And I knew that graphic design was probably the closest I could get to being a computer monkey. And I wanted to be with the computer more often. And so that's kind of like where I ended up going. But my program, again, as I said, because the phone didn't exist. <laughs> like The iPhone doesn't exist um, until like... You know, the second year of college, essentially. <laughs> and so I was like a print designer. Yeah.
0: It was a little similar and a little different for me. Like my dad owned a graphic design company, mm-hmm. but he didn't refer to himself as a designer. He referred to himself as a commercial artist. Oh, yeah. yeah he yeah. never used a computer. And, I
1: liked that title.
0: And he had <sighs> previously worked as a draftsman. He had failed out. Like he was in architecture school and failed out. And I was failing everything in school, and my, you know, and I'd always like, I, I knew that I wanted to be self-employed, and I knew that I wanted to do something creative. But you know, my dad helped me like reach a similar conclusion. Like graphic design might be what you want to look at. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't, I, I wasn't, I didn't see the business side of that. I was just like creative, like I, I wanted to do like skateboard graphics or like, yeah, filming stuff or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, I. And then, and I didn't also, I, unlike you, I didn't want to be on a computer yeah. at all. I made fun of people on computers and then like a few years in I was like, I'm on a, I'm a, you, comu- I'm you a computer. Bullied, you <laughs> would
1: have bulldi- bullied me. <laughs> I've been like obsessed with my computer and be like, oh, that's a loser.
0: <laughs> uh, so it's 2020, uh, it's new year. What are some of the biggest challenges that you're thinking about right now, either personal or business wise? And what are, what are you the most excited about?
1: I'm super excited about this year because I think 2019 kicked me in the ass as well as everyone else I know. Apparently (laughs) 2019 was a rough year for everybody. Um, But I've come out of 2019 feeling very confident about the product because, you know, we spent that entire year just kind of iterating and now subscriptions are actually selling on a daily basis and it's kind of blowing me away. (laughs) <laughs> so it's, it's um, surprising, but also not surprising because we've been working on it. So I'm excited to see how I can scale it. And I gave my team a very lofty goal that I wanted to get to profitability by November 14th. Okay. And, you know, there's really there's only two people being paid and our expenses are quite low. So it's not a crazy goal, but I think it is a stretch. Um, so that's what I'm very excited about this year. And I think I think we can do it. Who knows? Well,
0: it seems like uh, it's also helping you th- to support the lifestyle that I imagine you're trying to have. Like I, you travel, like you know, you seem to be able to do all these things that you're personally interested in too. So it seems like that's all work- working out pretty well for you.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to find this like balance. Um, I think I was tr- 2019 was rough because I also tried to live someone else's life for a little bit.
0: Okay, what uh, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, I this is going to be so ridiculous sounding to probably everyone listening to this, but I think I had taken turning 30 very difficult, like very hard. <laughs> and people were grabbing my shoulders and saying, oh, your ovaries and kind of like the typical thing that happens when a woman turns 30. Everyone starts worrying about her ovaries. You're
0: geriatric. You know? <laughs>
1: yeah, like you will <laughs> die alone. <laughs> like, like, They're like creating billboards on the highway specifically saying, Helen, you'll die alone. Um, so that was like weirding me out and I think it this has never been really a priority for me like it's not on my top three which is like find a husband and do all of these things because I've always been so I'm a curious person so I've always been super excited by learning a whole bunch of other things but building a relationship is not always in my top three or probably has never been in my top three so I thought to myself, well, maybe I need a change. Maybe I do need to, you know, take this more seriously and and I got to do this other life thing. So 2019, I was like, you know what? I'm going to stay home more often, which, you know, I've been a traveler since I was a little kid, so I don't even know where that came from. I'm going to stay home more often. I'm going to try to, you know, put more effort into my local community, which I did, and I thought that was That was a good return. (laughs) And then um, I'm going to date more. I'm going to do all of these things. And I just felt like I was living a different person Mm -hmm. for like a solid year. But I told myself that I would do it and I would commit to it. And I did. But by the end of 2019, I was I was done. I was so upset. (laughs) And I realized that, like, there are some things you can't change about yourself and you maybe shouldn't try to change it.
0: Given what you just said, I mean, it takes a lot of discipline to commit to something, anything, right? Like mm-hmm. I've uh, I, like, I can. I've always been good at committing to things that I do in the business realm, but I've always failed at things in the personal realm. Like right. I haven't been able to like be disciplined about my, to my unhealthy habits. And I haven't been, you know, in relationships and things like that. You, you know, you just talked about this and in you know, committing to do this for a year, you are have created a business and committing to that. You're also very active, very active lifestyle. And you also travel and all these other things that you care about. What does discipline mean to you? Have you always been disciplined? How did you learn how to be disciplined? You know, maybe, maybe unpack that a little bit. I'm, I'm generally curious about that. Like learning how to be, become a more well-rounded disciplined person is something that I I think about all the time. But to do some of the things that you're able to do, like, I know what I'm good at, but do, to do some of the things that I might want to do, or maybe some of the things that you're good at, I don't know how to become disciplined in it.
1: Mm, yeah. I don't think I've, I was ever really disciplined, so in... And- Um, in school I as I said I wasn't remarkable but I also didn't do any of the things that the teachers wanted me to do so I was a queen at not doing my homework and finding out a way to do it like during the last five minutes of class time so I could just not carry my books home because I thought the books were too heavy (laughs) that's the most ridiculous absurd thing but I just didn't want to carry it home and so I wasn't very disciplined with like being a very good student. And I think this carried across different areas of my life where I would get like intensely interested in a subject and I would just let it run. But the whole, everything else in my life would just kind of fall apart. So I don't think I've ever really been disciplined until I hit, um, I discovered bodybuilding and it taught me, it basically changed my entire outlook. On setting goals, commitment, and discipline. So, there's a lot to bodybuilding that is actually quite boring, which is you go to the gym and you do 50 reps of the same exercise times six exercises times five times a week. That's a lot of, I don't really want to do this. I mean, it's very easy for you to say that, but bodybuilding taught me to set a goal. Well, what's my goal? I want to win this competition. In order to do that, I need to get the muscle. In order to do that, I need to do whatever it takes in order to get there. So I kind of framed, like it slowly framed everything in my life like that. But just before that too, I also started doing long distance hiking. And that's the exact same thing. If you don't want to die in the wilderness, you just got to keep walking, right? You don't have a choice. And, you know, when you're on kilometer 200 of 340, you can't turn around. <laughs> so I put myself in all of these situations and it was, it was sort of accidental. I kind of, I don't know if you know, but I like, I have a coming of age story that I tell often. It's kind of very boring now, but when I hit my mid twenties, I kind of like restarted my life. I like, I kind of hit the reset button and I ended up trying everything. And one of them was long-distance hiking. And all of these kind of hobbies like really taught me about resilience and what I was capable of. Because I think for a very long time, I wasn't actually sure that I could hike 400 kilometers. Or I could do all of these things because, I, again, as I said, I wasn't very remarkable at anything. So I just kind of assumed I was bad at everything. And then I started pushing myself and like, okay, well, if I could do this, like, can I do this other thing? And it was like one after another, I would keep knocking down the pegs. And I think fitness goals are, are really good at teaching you that, uh, like, you know, how do you, how do you run a 10 K? Right. Well, you run for five minutes on the first day. Can you do that? And it's like, well, you definitely could do that. So if you can do that, you can probably do seven minutes. Right. And then it's just kind of this like incremental, it really kind of framed my learning. I was always a good learner but I didn't know how to like break it down into a process. And I think I've really just kind of like mastered that now. I'm coming around to it.
0: That's awesome. I mean, you know, there's a big difference in a goal that's like, write X many words per week, then like transform your body. Uh-huh. Right. And I would imagine that having those experiences also translates really well to the kinds of responsibilities you have as a co-founder and CEO in order to create, like break down things that take a long time to achieve into things that make sense for your team to do and be able to break that down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I could see that that those experiences probably help a lot with that. I think because I think a lot, you know, I, I don't have those those kinds of experience and goal setting, you know, for me is been, that's probably the most difficult thing that I've experienced in running a business is like trying to figure out how to create these goals and translate them into a way that I think others can attain them. Mm-hmm. Because I'm always like, go, 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 do it, Yeah. and I'm also the owner, and not everyone's thinking about it at the same velocity <laughs> I am, but um, I think that that, that probably is a, a good way to learn how to create really big goals.
1: I think people really struggle with that. One of my, I think it's, I can't remember his title, CMOs from Shopify said, like like people overestimate what they can do in a day, but they underestimate what they can do in a year, which is kind of like a very interesting hmm. problem that we all have with goal-setting. And I think we encountered that too in Jupiter where you're trying to build something and, and I'd say it takes about two years to get to market on average for a SaaS-based company and feel confident about where you are.
0: In your opinion, getting to market or getting to market being like a validated, in a validated yeah, space?
1: in a validated space. And, and maybe that's a little bit too early because Notion took three years. But on average, people have given me like two to four years. It takes about that amount of time. And I think founders often burn out out of boredom because on year like two, you're like, is this really worth it? I've sunk two years of my life into this. Mm-hmm. And, and then they're like, Oh, can I do another two years? That's really difficult for everyone. And sometimes I struggle with it too, but I can, but there are moments where I can like, I can feel my bodybuilding brain kind of like kick in. And it says like, if you, if you need to get to this goal, you need to do this. And so that kind of like frames everything into perspective for me. It's like, do you really want this goal? I think it's really important for you to know why you want to get there. Because it's like, do you really want this goal? Why do you want this goal? Well, you need to eat some shit in order to get there. It can't be perfect all the way through. And I think that's really hard for everyone. It took me so long to get past that. Uh, Even for bodybuilding, I have my moments of doubt. Like last week, I was just talking to my coach coaches are helpful too. <laughs> I was talking to my coach and having a complete meltdown about, you know, what's the point of all of this? <laughs> and he's like, well, there isn't, you know, there's no point to anything really. And it's like, well, do you really want this goal? And again, the answer is yes. Yeah. And so if the answer is yes, then you got to There's some stuff that you got to do in order to get there.
0: Yeah. I think, um, I was, I was watching a comedian on Netflix and someone had a skit I don't wasn't no no. It was the completely different. It was the Democratic debate, <laughs> and 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 someone it could
1: have been a skit. <laughs> so it might as well be a Comedy skit. Central. Yeah,
0: <laughs> someone said something like, "There are a lot of working professionals. You know, even some that are highly paid that work to pay for childcare, so they can work." <laughs> yeah. And there is some truth to that. Like these these things that you start thinking about when you're older are expensive. Mm -hmm. personal care hobbies child care you know caring for your parents all all these things and when they in aggregate they add up and there is some extent to like having to like design your life so you can you know pay for these things but you know like all things considered i think the thing that we think about similar to you is like okay well you know this is a life and, you know, there's no right or wrong way. Like what, you know, like what's the best way we can design this so we can do, have the balance of the things that we want, like maintain the, the kind of life we want, being able to have the, you know, the, the amount of money to, have, so that we can explore our hobbies and the kind of travel we want to do. How do you think about, there was something in one, in, in and there was a blog that you wrote. It was called Lessons from 2019, I think, mm-hmm. something like that you mentioned something about wealth as a peace of mind. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about that. Like how do you, how do you define wealth like for you and how that sort of guides the, the kind of decisions that you make?
1: Yeah. So I grew up in not a very wealthy environment or not a very well off. Even obviously my parents were immigrants, so they came over with very little and I always just kind of looked at money as a tool. But it was never a goal to me. And I don't think my parents ever framed it as that either. Um, it was more like, well, we're going to need some money in order to survive, <laughs> of course. And we're going to work really hard for that. But to them, it wasn't interesting to buy a new car. It wasn't interesting to get a bigger house. It was just like, we just need a house. Let's just get to, <laughs> let's just get to there. And then once we got there, a house, we have a roof over our head and some food coming in every day. It was it was good. So for me, wealth is always freedom and choice. So I think another form of jail is working for someone else, working 15, twelve hours a day, and resenting everyone around you. And it's like a jail of your own making, perhaps, or a jail of society's making. Um, and to me, that's not wealth. It means you're poor. If You're poor on time, Mm -hmm. um, and you're poor on choices, and you're you're poor on a lot of things, right? And I think, to me, that's really what the rich thing is about. So you look at a rich person, you say, oh, I really want their life. It's like, you don't really want their life. You don't really want that 10,000-acre mansion. What you actually want is their freedom that they wake up every morning. And they could say, you know what, I'm going to drive my Lexus down the street to the grocery store and buy <laughs> like a really expensive bread at Whole Foods and then, you know, go get my nails done. Like that's, that's true wealth, mm-hmm. I think. It's not the mansion or the cars or all of that stuff. It's the ability to choose. And I think the ability to like also set your time and, and figure out what you, you can do in the day based on your values is also another form of wealth. And for me, like wealth is also peace of mind. Like, I know right now that I've gotten myself to a financial level where I feel like my parents don't have to worry about things. And for me, that's peace of mind. Like, that's wealthy. I don't care what happens to me.
0: I don't, I don't know about you, but, you know, like, coming from what I know about Vietnamese families and Mexican families and the culture I grew up in, there seems to be a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. Do you think about taking care of your, your family?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. It's not even a choice. Yeah. It's an understood, (laughs) it's, it's what happens. I didn't, I actually had no idea that people didn't do that. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't know that people made a choice to put people in homes and all that stuff. I had no idea that entire industry existed Yeah, because I just took for granted this whole idea of like, well, yeah, of course I'm taking care of them. (laughs) Like where else would they go? They're mine. It was like, I'm theirs and they're mine. And also the idea of like childcare as well. My nephew was just born last year and it was just kind of expected that my brother (laughs) and my sister-in-law would move into my parents' house for a bit. And that's just what happened. And it was never a question like, oh, how are they going to juggle childcare for the first few months? Mm -hmm. It's just like, well, of course, like what else are the grandparents doing? So, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's you know not not everyone had you know comes from families where they think about that, but I think that you know like at least for me that's that's something we talked about this a little bit that that helps. Well, when you really understand that, it helps drive some of these things. My um, I love both sides of my family. Like my mom's side of the family, uh, we have like two engineers. Mm -hmm. um, One that was like one of the biggest executives at Exxon. One that worked for NASA. Another one's a cardiologist very wealthy family. I went to Princeton and Yale. And then my dad's side of the family, like no one went to college, you know, very, you know, very different economical uh, situations. And I had a lot of pressure from one side of the family, like to do this. And my dad was like, he said very early on, he said, happiness is being your own boss. (laughs) Yes. He's like, you know, um, I understand that now, like, uh, sure, you have to be able to survive, but when you, when you're in control and you can do these things, like, I've realized for me that that's that's wealth for me, like mm-hmm. that 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 flexibility to Yeah, to to do things the way I want to do. I, that's ultimately what drove me to start this business because I couldn't. Well, part of the, part of it was that, but also like, there's no way someone's going to work me 12 hours a day. Like I know, <laughs> yeah. I know that I can do, I can be effective in four hours, and yes. like I just can't work in that kind of environment. Yeah, but.
1: I, I can be a full of attitude employee too when I feel like I'm getting directives that I don't agree with. Yeah, yeah. I'm I can be a great employee if you agree with me, like the best employee you've ever had. <laughs> but if you disagree with me, I am like your worst nightmare. So so uh,
0: Jupiter's hiring. <laughs> you can uh, you can apply at.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, doesn't working for me sound really fun? <laughs> so uh, on a maybe break it down on a personal and business level. Like where do you hope to be two years from now?
1: Two years from now. Yeah. Dreaming. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, Jupiter is definitely profitable two years from now. Definitely. For sure. For sure. And we have maybe one more developer. <laughs> I, I, I like the idea of a small team yeah. as small as possible, as long as possible as profitable as possible. I have a couple of CEOs that I really admire. Um, one of them is Ray Dalio. And I think he has one of, I think if, if not the largest profit per head of private companies, investment firm. Yeah. Great book, by the way, principles. Have you read it?
0: I haven't. It's fantastic. I'll, I'll take a look at it.
1: Yeah. He just, he just lays out all of his values and principles and, and explains how it's executed through his business. It's fantastic.
0: So is this what you were talking about when you were we were organizing this and you talked about principled leadership? Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about that. <laughs> okay, but where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> what, like whatever you think is the I don't know, off the cuff, like yeah. interesting.
1: I think we often don't talk about principled leadership anymore. But it used to be from what I gather from what I've been reading lately, it used to be more normal and accepted to look at business as a way of executing your values in society. And somehow within the last 20 years, it didn't turn out that way. Like, so I think there's a generation of entrepreneurs and I've been reading all of their books that feel like they have very strong values, very strong ideas on why they're doing the things that they're doing. Like one of my, another one of my famous favorite CEOs is Yvonne Schonard. So the founder of Patagonia mm-hmm. and he comes across as someone who is full of integrity, has principles, has reasons behind why he's making these decisions, and he explains how he does it through the business so he cares deeply about the environment and here's how he's doing it through Patagonia. Well, they reworked all of their fabric so that it's all recyclable didn't They'll, have to
0: but does, yeah did they do? had.
1: they didn't have to they were the leader in the market at the time, but they just took they just decided to change absolutely everything about their supply chain, including like going all the way back to the people who are making it. So they support a bunch of factories that have wages that are livable in the countries that they live in. Uh, they change all of their dyes so that they're not, you know, as, as damaging as the ones that were available to the industry before. And they're still at the forefront of all of these new fabrics and all of these new dyes and all of these new ways of doing business. So it used to be, I feel like, based off of my reading, that... There was a generation of people that were pushing this idea of principled leadership, and then somehow I think you know we got we fell in love with money as a little bit, a little bit too much, and then that kind of that didn't pass on to the next generation mm-hmm. of entrepreneurs, and now I feel like I'm looking at tech startup CEOs and I'm like, why do you not know this? And I'm frustrated. But then, of course, I only know this like recently. So I just feel like there's a lot of like knowledge that was not passed on from that generation of CEOs to this one. Or I think there's three generations now. Um, So now the third generation is doing things like, well, you know, now we're trying to uh, squeeze the middle class. And that's that's our business model. (laughs) It's like like everyone is renting out their homes or becoming a part-time driver or like all of those businesses just squeeze the middle class. Um, be, you know, we can get into this forever, but regardless, like there's a whole generation of that. and And then now they're trying to like ham fist in values, like after the fact, they're saying we're doing this to like, you know, change transportation for the world. And it's like, no, no, no. You don't get to say that because you didn't come in like that.
0: Right. Um, Are you familiar with the below the iceberg iceberg business canvas model?
1: I I know below the iceberg, but I don't know.
0: Um, I I was at a uh, Google sponsored Sprint conference. Mm -hmm. And they had different people in to sort of present different uh, design thinking methodologies and like design thinking canvases. And one of them was I can't remember the the two individuals that created it. It was called Below the Iceberg, and it it was it was a design thinking canvas specifically for those kinds of things. Like, okay, we want to let people stream content twenty four hours a day, <laughs> but what's what's the yeah what's the reaction to that? Like, yeah. how is that like the the energy the energy the economy the. And it looks on things on like a, like an economical, sociological, like all these different other spectrums that aren't like those kinds of things. And mm-hmm. I, I, I think, I don't, but I don't think a lot of people think about that, those kinds of things. Yeah. And, and it is kind of hard to like work, work backwards into that.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think maybe like people were told like business is a way for you to make money, which is not wrong. But then they were also not told the other half, which is it's a way for you to make an impact in the world that also happens Mm -hmm. to make you money. Like these two things are not mutually exclusive. You don't have to like go down one of two paths. Right. But uh, yeah. So I just felt like that's been missing in a lot of leadership. And often I still hear about it when we talk about it, even like on Twitter or anything like that. And I still think that's missing. We're we're not talking about like integrity and morals and like, we're not questioning each other's decisions. Like, why are you choosing to do this? Uh, And it's like, well, i don't know uber for groceries
0: okay so back on the two-year thing um Mm, two years from now okay so earlier you said i'm a i'm an owner of a software company not a ceo not a designer (laughs) two years from now are you still designing
1: maybe product still i can see myself letting go of the marketing stuff I do everything right now, so I even code the .com. So, yeah, I I can see myself letting go of the marketing design. There are definitely more talented designers out there doing that. I don't know if I'll ever let go of product. I think that is my strength, and I, I love doing user testing. I love doing user interviews. That was something I deeply, deeply missed towards the end of my Shopify position because I was doing so much management. I didn't have enough time to actually do my job. And we also had user researchers there. So it didn't make any sense for me to do run the interviews. But now that I'm in the position where I am doing it, I I love it. Like I still love that part of it where I get to talk to people and they're so excited to talk to you too. <laughs> I don't know why people don't do more user testing. It's such an uplifting part of my position. I agree where I get to say, like, hey, can you use this? Like, is this helpful for you? And oftentimes they say, yes, like, this is really helpful. Thank you for doing this. I'm like, oh, God, this is the gratitude I've been chasing my whole life. <laughs> so I don't know if I'll ever stop that. And I think it's a good thing. I think, you know, the CEO needs to keep their pulse a little bit on the product. My ex-CEO, my Shopify one, he still keeps his finger on the product. Um, he still develops So.
0: I saw something recently where someone that I know in Austin applied for an apprenticeship or something to be like his assistant mm. and he responded on Twitter with this like a really amazing thing and it's like really awesome to see that that level of connection just kind of a side thing but it yeah, is.
1: Oh yeah. I think it's great these days that now you have like instant access to people who you wouldn't have otherwise. And I totally abuse that all the time. I'm like DMing people that I have no business talking to, but it's pretty great.
0: So I wanted to ask you a personal question. You seem to be in Texas a lot recently, (laughs) uh, which is not common for someone that lives in Toronto. So like, what is it that, what is it bringing you to Texas?
1: Um, my friend, Colin, hi Colin. (laughs) Uh, he brought me here first the first trip and then I just accidentally found myself in Texas the next six months after I wanted to go to a football game and he and another friend had taken me out. Mike, I think, I think, has he been on this podcast?
0: University Laundry. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So they took me to my first real American football game for my birthday. And then, yeah, I just kept coming back. Awesome. (laughs) I think like Texas has a way of making me feel more comfortable in my own skin. Toronto is quite a soft city. So we don't have a lot. We don't have as big personalities as you do in Texas. So I feel when I come here, I can be a hundred percent myself. Whereas in Toronto, I'm like, maybe like 90% Helen. Like there's something like that's like squished in Toronto because it's not socially acceptable to be that person. (laughs) And I think that. In Texas, because you all are so used to like so many big and in-your-face personalities, that I can come here and be a hundred percent Helen, and I'll still be a very soft personality, <laughs> and it's going to be okay. And so I feel like a little bit safer. And there's like an endearing quality too, uh, where you guys just can't quit talking.
0: <laughs> We like to talk.
1: You love talking like yeah, so do. much, so yeah. much to strangers, to everyone around yeah. you. And I first, I thought it was my friends. I was like, oh, I really like these people. They can't stop talking. It's kind of nice. But then I came to Texas and stayed here for a little bit longer. And I was like, oh, it's actually everyone in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. And then on my big trip, my last recent big trip in Texas, I had been meeting all a bunch of other people who had moved here, like from California, Mm -hmm. from, you know, wherever they were in the States. And I was just telling them this. I was like, Hey, have you noticed that Texans can't stop talking and you're their friend like instantly? And they're like, yes, I have noticed that. That's why I moved here and (laughs) stayed. And I was like, yes, (laughs) it's so great. Like, yeah, it's very, um, I don't think it's Southern hospitality. Everyone says that immediately. Southern hospitality to me is like, I'm coming into your home and you're going to be nice about it. Yeah, of course. Right. Every culture has that version. Right. So I don't think any culture out there is like, you know what? We're total dicks when you come to our country. Every culture I've ever met has been like, we are very hospitable Ex- except maybe the Swedish. <laughs> who are a little bit cold, but um, yeah, most of them are pretty nice, but Texans have this other thing, which is like, they kind of start conversations in the middle of conversations. Like the first thing they'll say to you is almost as if like you're in the middle of a conversation and then they kind of like continue. So, you know, in most countries it's like, hi, how are you stranger? (laughs) <laughs> please tell me something about you. So you become a not stranger in Texas. It's like yesterday I went to my grandma's house and she, she made this like peach cobbler <laughs> for me. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. All of a sudden we're in your grandma's house. You have a grandma. <laughs> like, she really likes to bake. <laughs> like, it's this like really weird habit they have. And it happens everywhere you go all over Texas. I was driving all over Texas and it's a very common thing.
0: It was really difficult for Natalie and I, we, to, when we moved to the East coast to see that, right. Like to, you know, but, you know, coming back, like, yeah, I think, uh, you know, people, you know, only thing else, I mean, I'm a obviously very big fan of Austin, but I think people in Austin in Dallas and other cities, and they generally care about community and building, mm-hmm. building things. It's usually pretty real. I find yeah and that's what keeps me here. Maybe yeah. that will bring you back here <laughs> yeah. uh, more often. No,
1: I was just telling myself, like, stop coming back to Texas. <laughs> like, try other things.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, at least come to Austin more often. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Dallas, but come to Austin every now and then. Too. I know you drew, like took the great Greyhound.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's total par on par now with Dallas and Austin. I think. Do what? I I think it's par on par. I spend just amount like the same amount of days in Austin as I do Dallas. Okay.
0: Well, then I just probably need to. Spend more time with you when you're here then.
1: Yeah, yeah. We just need to do more things together.
0: Let's do that. Okay. Thank you so much for making the trip here Yeah, and for no being problem. here. Um, I'm looking forward to hanging out with you and learning a little bit more about your impressions of Texans. <laughs> um, congratulations on all the business success and Thank you. Um, thanks, thanks again for making time. How can people connect with you? Yeah,
1: if you want to reach me, find me on Twitter. I also have an Instagram but it's less interesting and it's about cookies right now so... Twitter, Tran Helen, um, Instagram, Tran Helen as well. And your business? And my business is tryjupiter.com.
0: Awesome. Make sure you check out um, everything that Helen's doing. She's really awesome. Reach out to her. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in this episode. We'll see you next time. Cheers.
1: Hustle is brought to you by FunSize,
0: a digital service and product design agency that works with inspiring teams to uncover opportunities, Evolve popular products, bring new businesses to market, and prepare for the future. Learn more at funsize.co. I'm Edgar Briseno, a design lead at FunSize. Thanks for listening to Hustle and be on the lookout for our next episode.